Welcome to Guidepost, the cutting-edge podcast series produced by the CRISPR Journal. Hello, I'm Kevin Davis, Executive Editor of the CRISPR Journal. Thanks for joining us. In our 10th episode, we meet a pair of very talented chemists, Alexis Comor and Nicole Gordelli, who played instrumental roles in the development of base editing. This episode of Guidepost is brought to you by Synthago, providing you with genome engineering solutions such as synthetic single-guide RNAs and CRISPR-engineered cells. And by the CRISPR Journal, publishing the latest research, analysis and opinion in the field of CRISPR biology and genome editing. In 2013, Alexis Comor, a PhD student at Caltech, began emailing some research project ideas with her prospective supervisor, Harvard Professor David Liu. By the time she arrived in Cambridge, Massachusetts for her postdoc, the framework of base editing had been designed. Comor's research led to the publication of the first base editor, an ingenious molecular machine using dead Cas9 that can engineer a C to T substitution without breaking the double helix. Soon thereafter, Alexis's friend and fellow postdoc Nicole Gordelli decided to abandon her original project in favour of developing a companion base editor, one that can selectively produce an A to G mutation. The basic research and therapeutic applications of this technology are immense. Alexis Comor returned to Southern California and is now an assistant professor at UCSD, the University of California, San Diego. Nicole Gordelli moved up the street to become principal scientist at Beam Therapeutics, a startup co-founded by David Liu, Feng Zhang and Keith Jung. We recently met Alexis and Nicole to discuss the inception and development of base editing. It's a fascinating discussion over 60 minutes. I hope you'll agree. So I'm very lucky to be joined on uh, this episode of Guidepost by not one but two special guests. Uh, On my left, Alexis Comor. Hello, Alexis. Hi. (laughs) And on my right, Nicole Gordelli. Yes. Hi, Hi. Hi, everyone. Um, uh, Colleagues, uh, good friends, and um, two uh, of the prime instigators of a new form of gene editing, relatively new form of gene editing, called base editing. And that's what we're obviously here to to talk about today. So um, I appreciate you spending some time uh, with us. You're both, uh, you both spent uh, good time in David Liu's lab where the base editing concept and first base editors were developed. Mm -hmm. Um, So before we get into sort of a little bit of the history and how, what some of the key landmarks were in in that story, um, perhaps you could just both give a sense, just a quick sort of 30 second summary of what is base editing and what, what, what are your ambitions for for what this uh, technology could do. Alexis, I'll start with you. Yeah, well, I think it's not sort of like a technology that's going to completely overtake CRISPR. I think it's complementary. It has its pros and its cons. Um, and CRISPR has its pros and its cons. Yeah. And they're they're quite complementary and orthogonal to each other. Right. And so um, not only can base editing be used as a therapeutic to correct disease-relevant point mutations, but it can also be used as a really powerful research tool right. where we can introduce these point mutations into the genome of live cells right. and use that for a variety of applications. Okay. 
Okay. And uh, so I should say, Alexis, you're in academia still. You went. You've, you have your own lab now at UCSD. Yes. And uh, but Nicole, you've gone into industry to take uh, to join a company that David has co-founded um, called Beam Therapeutics. So you're obviously more much more interested in the specific medical applications of the technology. Yeah. So I work at Beam Therapeutics. It's a biotech company in the heart of Boston, and we're looking to really. Um, take the best base editing technology and transform it for usefulness for patients. Yeah. So really trying to get it into disease relevant sites and really make it work in the real world. Um, so base editing for me, I see as more of a precision tool to yeah. use that is um, much more precise than maybe CRISPR 2.0 versions. I'm right. of course very biased because yeah. yeah. that's the tool that I use. Right. Um, but for a lot of um, applications, base editors, it can be a superior form of um, a superior tool for correction of very debilitating genetic diseases. Okay, great. So uh, you're both chemists by training, right? So this yes. is what obviously explains in part how you ended up in David Liu's lab. But yes. um, you joined, um, uh, help us understand when you joined and w how the, the initial concept of base editing arose. Who would like, Alexis? Yeah, so um, I was in my third year of my PhD, actually, yeah. in the chemistry department at Caltech. And my committee said, oh, there's, you know, if you want to do a postdoc for a big name lab, there's wait lists everywhere, so you have to apply now. And so I applied to David's lab. I thought, you know, it's it's difficult because I, I was, I had, my PhD was entirely like synthetic chemistry, and I really wanted to do protein engineering and evolution for my postdoc. And it's hard to sort of sell yourself as a postdoc candidate when you want to learn all these new techniques and your background is not super applicable. And so I said, well, you know, I feel like David Liu might be understanding of that since he is classically trained as a chemist as well and he mm. branched out. Yeah. Um, so I applied to his lab and I interviewed like a year and a half before my actual start date would be. Wow. Um, which, yeah, over planning, but it worked out. <laughs> and so um, at Caltech, before we can, um, before you can schedule your thesis defense, you have to defend um, three independent um, research proposals that you have to come up with um, that are you know, not related to, the, to your thesis work. Oh. And so I decided, okay, I might as well write one on what I'm gonna work on in David's lab. And so we started this email communication where I would write these white papers, which is like, you just put like a random stream of thoughts on yeah. a Word document and send it to him. And, uh, and we had a bunch of back and forths about it. And in the end, we came up with base editing. And it started with like this weird RNA editing idea that I had thrown out there. And it was, it was yeah, it was funny. It was like a chemist trying to delve into the molecular biology world. So you're coming up with this idea to fulfill your PhD requirements. So part, yeah, I said, okay, one of, my, one of my three proposals, I'll write it on this. And then I also was you know gonna apply for postdoc fellowships. With that and then I would know what I was working on right. when I arrived. So it was like you know three birds with one stone type right. thing. Right. And so uh, he was you know super busy. So I would email him and then he wouldn't respond for a week and I'd have to keep like you know sending emails being like, did you see my last email? And then finally <laughs> responded. Um, and so yeah, over the course of it took probably three months or so between this back and forth yeah. and um, the idea of, of base editing was developed. Huh. 
Do you and still have that white paper somewhere? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'd love to see that. We do have it. <laughs> you know, you can see the evolution of it from, yeah. like, RNA editing. Yeah. And I think the breakthrough was he... We were, he, he was looking at it, and he's like, you know, this, this is interesting, but figure out a way to do this with DNA, and then we're talking. And so, um, and he kept bringing up Cas9, and I was like, what is this Cas9 thing? Like, uh, why is he so yeah. crazy about this Cas9 thing? Yeah. And then I finally, um, I had been looking up these CRISPR papers, and I, there was a ton of stuff known about, um, the like CSY4 enzymes, the enzymes that would um, basically make the mature CRISPR RNA enzymes. Uh-huh. And I was like, wait, he's telling me to do DNA editing, but then there's all these like RNA cleavage enzymes that are involved in this CRISPR system. What? And then I finally found like the Cas9 papers and I was like, okay, okay. this makes a lot more sense now. So while Alexis is <laughs> yeah, so she's, she's much more organized. So she's like type A, I'm type B. <laughs> She has a very clear, like, focused path that yeah. is logical, planned yeah. out. That was not me at okay. all. Okay. But you're already in David's lab at this point. Um, or you yeah, predated so Alexis. Yeah, that, I would like to say that I actually wasn't thinking about David as a postdoc, yeah. like, where I was going to do my postdoc. Yeah. Um, I actually, my background is in antibiotic biosynthesis. Yeah. I did organic chemistry. I'm a mechanistic enzymologist. So I was really interested in thinking about how we can make new antibiotics and or, or discovery of new antibiotics. So either the front or back end of natural product mm. um, trajectories, and I was really interested in like Chris Walsh and John Clardy, sort of a very like um, you know uh, old regime type, uh, very standard yeah. uh, situation you would go into for your postdoc. And yeah. David came to Johns Hopkins where I did my graduate work and nice. gave this talk, and I and it was on phage-assisted continuous evolution. And I looked around, I was like, is this the same David Liu that does DTS? And it was just uh, DNA templated synthesis, which I had known and respected David for, but I didn't know he was um, into all these different uh, platforms for evolution. And it really sparked my curiosity. And I felt excited about science again in a way I hadn't felt for a long time. And I felt so inspired that I marched up to my PhD advisor's office and said, I want to work for David Liu and that's it. And he's like, well, you've completely changed, you know, what we're, we've been talking about for the yeah. past six months. Yeah. And I was just like, this is what I'm going to do, and that's it. And it's the only postdoc um, application oh. I put out. Did you tell David this after his seminar? After the fact. Of course, oh. you didn't tell him that yeah. before. <laughs> um, so I was fortunate enough to be accepted in his lab, and yeah. I proposed um, I proposed projects that dealt with um, trying to develop new carbapenem antibiotics using the PACE platform, I had okay. done that for about a year. It turned out to not work, and then I, I switched to microfluidics. During this time, yeah. uh, Alexis had joined the lab, yeah. and we became fast friends. In fact, in the beginning, he confused us. Yeah, no, that's, some a, that's a hilarious story. We should tell that story. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Right no, uh, yes, go ahead. Well, I, well basically, he just kept confusing us, and like I had white papers, and she had white papers, and he would send mine to her, and her yeah. send oh. me. Well, and, we were applying for the the like postdoc the nih like ruth kirsten postdoc uh-huh. fellowship and it was like a couple months before i was gonna arrive and then nicole was already there and so we were both sending him our proposals to like edit and comment on and then he would send me hers and he would send her mine and, and then, then when i finally <laughs> met her i was like she looks nothing yeah. like and me then I, I showed Blue up eyes, I sh- blonde hair I california <laughs> I'm dark skin, dark guys, like Italian, all yeah. the way. I showed up my first day, and he said, "Oh yeah, like come meet meet the, the the lab members." And then, I mean, at the time there were like maybe 
two other women in the lab or something. And he was like, oh, yeah, this is Nicole. I kept confusing you. You can see why. And we just started, like, like, staring at each other like, what? That is funny. (laughs) Oh, my God. So you had some, Nicole, you had, uh, sounds like you you were familiar with this sort of directed evolution, which yes. will become very important in yes. a little bit later, yeah, so because very, that was a very risky yes. part of the story, but we'll just park that for a second and come back. So Alexis, you've arrived and you, you're now gung-ho to do, um, yeah. to put into practice what you've been yeah. emailing David yeah. back and forth back for 18 months. Yeah, so I think I, I submitted my initial postdoc fellowship and did my thesis or my um my proposal defense in um february of 2014 and then i started in september of 2014 right um and then i think i got like the sort of in vitro results with like the purified protein oh it can bind to dna and deaminate these cytosines if they're in these positions i think i got those results by like April. So before we before we get into those results, what what exactly were you just from first principles? What were you trying to do? Which base were you trying to convert to? Which other base? Yeah. So we we decided to start simple. Yeah. <laughs> so um, there are these yeah cytidine deaminase enzymes that were sort of classically known as RNA modifiers, but uh, Ruben Harris had some really great work showing that they actually also work on single stranded DNA. Yeah. And so single-stranded DNA is a lot more reactive than when it's double-stranded. You've probably heard about like Watson-Crick-Bake pairing. Um, that actually protects the DNA bases from damage. Okay. And so when it's single-stranded, um, it's amenable to deamination, both spontaneous and by these enzymes can catalyze it. And so when Cas9 binds to its DNA sequence, it like locally opens up the DNA and exposes a strand. And there's like a five base pair window where you have single stranded DNA that could be accessible to this enzyme. And so this brings up a really great idea of, you know, diversity in science. Just like me and Nicole, we're chemists. We bring this entirely new perspective to this, you know, genome editing field. And, um, And, you know, it took a chemist to kind of like look at these crystal structures and this biochemical data and say, oh, hey, you know, double-stranded DNA, single-stranded DNA, they're chemically just very different. And um, and so, yeah, it's like, it's a really wonderful thing when you just bring diversity to And in in terms of um, devising this base editing um, system or technology, are you are you thinking about this as this is a way to cure genetic disease? Is that the primary focus? No, no, no. That's the no. funny thing. When we were doing all this, that never. I was more interested in the like doing chemistry on DNA. I wasn't yeah. really thinking about that. I mean, that seems silly now yeah. in retrospect. But during the time, it was just like fascinating to think about DNA and how to modify it and create like engineer outcomes that you're looking yes. for and the mm-hmm. excitement of being able to manipulate this yeah. like large polymer that has biological implications yeah. that was the fascination for me mm-hmm. it wasn't until like the technology seemed to like be working quite robustly yeah. to think about how could this app be applied and then once you realize the promise of this technology it even becomes more um just like almost emotional it became emotional for me yeah. on some levels right. but like initially the excitement was purely just that oh, I can do these right. like same chemical manipulations mm-hmm. right. on a biologically relevant thing yeah. and use water as a solvent that's also mm-hmm. like I thought was wild mm-hmm. because you know usually in chemistry water is never a solvent yeah. and you can do these very precise modifications yeah. and get these really um, yeah. fantastic outcomes when you show and you and 
both of you and David give talks on this. I mean, it's, it's to, to the casual eye, it's sort of amazing that this works at all because you've constructed this sort of <laughs> tripartite assembly with sub A tethered to B attached to C. And you, how is this even working? Yeah. But, so I wonder if you just just basically describe what the three components are and how it all kind of fits together. I also, before she starts, I just want to point out that like she was like quite courageous in doing all this because at the time, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, but at the time there were a lot of like doubters. There were yeah. like, this isn't going to work. Up. There's yeah. no way you're going to get deamination all over the place. Doubters this- in your group? You yes. Mean, or- yeah. Oh, yes. Every yeah. Monday morning we'd have subgroup meetings yeah. and they it were- was like the bane of my existence. Uh-huh. So despite all that. Showing the, the, the results and like, you know, at the beginning, like I didn't know what I was doing. Okay. I had never cloned. So it's, plus like it was slow going and then, you know, it was just all these comments. Like I would just get like, just like an array of questions yeah. asking me about like, oh, but what about if this happens or if this happens or if this happens? But not from David. I mean, you're talking no, about no, your, no. your peers now. Yeah. You're yeah. postdocs yeah. and yeah. But we just had, or Alexis just had such a commitment to the fact that we're yeah. trying to do modifications on single-stranded DNA. This is creating the position. This yeah. enzyme is, works on single-stranded DNA, yeah. and this, you know, in theory could work. You know, she gives her, she's hard on herself for not cloning, yeah. but she was fine <laughs> yeah. cloning. It re- yeah. that really wasn't the hurdle. I think it was more the um, the mental exercise of getting over all the people that maybe weren't as supportive in mm. the beginning. So continue. <laughs> <laughs> So you, you uh, set out to prove them wrong. <laughs> I, I, I just, so background story. I am originally from California. I did my undergrad there. I did my PhD there. I said, okay, I'm going to move to Boston to branch out, but I only want to be there for a certain amount of time. And so I was there and I was like, I just need to get this to work so I can go back to California where it's warm and my family is. And I mean, technology development projects are super risky because if it doesn't work, you just have nothing. You know, these other types of projects where you're, you know, exploring some biological phenomenon, like you can still publish what you find. But um, if the technology doesn't work, then you, you have to start over from square one. And so that was like, I was just sort of praying the whole time, like, I really hope this works, or if it doesn't, it like fails early and fast. Yeah. So I can move on to work on something else. Because I, I mean, I was just really out of my comfort zone. Yeah. Like, opposite side of the country, my husband was still in California finishing his PhD. Um, I, you know, entirely new field of science. Um, and, you know, it was, yeah, it was tough. Right, right. But, uh, but so you arrive in, so 2015 is when you're really I started, yeah, sep- September up. 2014 yeah. is when I started. Yeah. And then we got some good results in like ap- the following April. I see. Um, okay. And by this time you've assembled the kind of the, the, the constituents of the base editing complex? Yeah. So, and I mean, initially it was just single-stranded DNA, cytidine deaminase. Yeah linker random linker yeah. although like we could talk about linkers for hours okay. we don't have hours <laughs> linkers, we're, not talk about linkers. <laughs> we're not going to because it's not exciting but like the linker it's yeah we linker and then dead cas9 so catalytically inactive cas9 all it does is bind and open up the dna that's the original design okay and when we moved to mammalian cells that's when we started to have to modify the system yeah um, but yeah, the initial hurdle to it took a really long time to get this like in vitro assay up and running. Yeah. Um, yeah. And explain just briefly the mo- modification that was needed in mammalian systems is to mm-hmm. get the get the result that you're trying yeah. to engineer, right? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, yeah, coming from a 
DNA repair background, it's sort of like, okay, genome and all types of genome editing, you, you damage the genome in a particular way, and then you try to manipulate DNA repair to repair it in a particular way that you want. And so there's been, you know, so much work done on double-stranded breaks and, you know, NHEJ versus HDR, and then now there's like MMEJ and SSA, I don't even know, so many. Um, but, you know, we were talking about introducing a new type of DNA damage, a new pathway, new repair pathway that we were going to have to worry about. And we only modify one DNA strand at a time. Right, we open up, there is a CG base pair, yeah. and we chemically modify only the cytosine. So okay. we take the cytosine to a uracil. Okay. And, and then that GU mismatch, yeah. it's not gonna survive in the cell for a while. The yeah. cell is gonna change it to something else, like yeah. a canonical, well-matched base pair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the question was, how do we force the cell to go in the AT direction rather than just back to a CG base pair? Yeah. And so there was, you know, everyone knows that this enzyme uracil DNA glycosylase kind of like just rips out uracils like nobody's business. Uh -huh. And so that was like one of the big things initially was like everyone was yelling at me to like inhibit UDG, inhibit UDG. And there was this, you know, short peptide called uracil glycosylase inhibitor. So uh -huh. we kind of fused that onto the end and it helped a little bit, but it, Efficiencies were still low. Yeah. We still saw a lot of uracil excision. And I think the real breakthrough was this Nikase idea. Uh-huh. And that kind of like at the time we were sort of looking, we're like, we still only modify one DNA strand. So theoretically, does that mean there's like a maximum yield of 50%? Right. You know? Right. Um and and so we were thinking like how do we sort of like break that barrier? And um, I forget, I was talking to someone in the group room and, um, and they were, they were kind of like asking me about the system and how does it work and stuff. And then it just like, it came to me. And I, and I like looked at this person, like it wasn't even really related to what we were talking about. I was just kind of like explaining the general idea, how it's working, how we're damaging the sizing. And then I like was like, how do we degrade the other strand? Like I just wanted to like just straight up degrade it so the cell would be forced to use that uracil as a template. And I was like, oh my God, we're working with an endonuclease. We've inactivated it, so all it does is bind, but we still have that residue or that mutation we could introduce back in and cleave that guanine-containing strand and then leave the uracil strand intact. And I remember I was like looking at it, I think it was Ben. Ben. I don't anyway, know, I wasn't part of this conversation. <laughs> I was like, my eyes got big and I looked at him and, and he had no idea what it said because I was like talking about something that related and it just popped in my head. I was like, oh my God, I have to go. <laughs> and then I jumped up and I, and I ran to my desk and I like ordered the primers immediately to like put this Nikkei's back in. And, you know, at the time we were so worried about getting scooped. You know, you're always worried about getting scooped. And David was like, you know, the, the uracil glycosylase inhibitor, it's like helped a little bit. Yeah. But I mean, I think it's good. I think we should just like publish this. Yeah. And I was like, I was ordering these primers to do the Nikase experiment. And he comes and he's like, I think we should start writing it up. And I was like, well, I just came up with this idea. And I told him what it was. And he just starts swearing. Like, he's like, swear words coming out. He's like, because he, he's like, he wanted to publish it immediately, but he knew that this idea right. was like good enough to wait <laughs> for. And he was like, how quickly can you do it? You're listening to Guidepost. Our thanks to Synthigo, providing genome engineering solutions such as synthetic single-guide RNAs and CRISPR-engineered cells. 
Back to our conversation with Alexis Comor and Nicole Gordelli, and we pick up the story with Nicole. So where in this process, Nicole, do you, because you're working on something yeah. quite unrelated and, and Alexis is getting you know, all this sort of, you know, the, 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 the well-meaning cynics in the lab who are you know, <laughs> asking these questions. Uh, was there a tipping point where suddenly you thought, oh my, I like, I, I'm more interested in what she's doing than what my current project or how did that I don't happen? think it was a tipping point. I think it was like a, a slow gradient <laughs> ramp up. Um, yeah. I always was very supportive of Alexis. We became like very yeah. fast friends yeah. and, um, I uh, taught her a lot about molecular cloning, and through those interactions, I learned about, I was like, oh, what are we cloning? Oh, it's this. Oh, why are you doing that? Oh, to do this. Oh, that's pretty cool. And so through those like intimate interactions, I was learning what she was doing and became interested, you know, more from the periphery, because I had a boatload of work I was trying to do that I was, is, and still am <laughs> passionate about, yeah. I've sidestepped from. Yeah. Um, and I think once the, um, I think actually maybe it was towards when you were ready to publish and mm -hmm. like it was really uh, promising technology yeah. and it was working in mammalian cells that I started to think about, you know, there's all sorts of other chemical modifications that can be made. There's, yeah. you know, we can do C to T, but are there other mm -hmm. um, transition mutations right. that we might want to try? Of course, right. the answer is yes. And so I found myself spending more and more time thinking creatively about how to do that instead of my antibiotic project. <laughs> and then I thought to myself, well, maybe. Mm. Um, and I wanted, because I didn't want to step on her toes or anything, I yeah. asked very, you know, politely and like, you know, would this, would you mind if I started to think about this more seriously? And she was very supportive of that. And Yeah, there's a delicate um, balance, isn't there? The, yes. the postdoc uh, yes. hierarchy and, yes. you know, hey, that's my project. Right, kind of and if thing. she said yeah. no, then I wouldn't have yeah. touched it. And that would have yeah. been fine and I would still be in antibiotic land okay. but uh, <laughs> I was very fortunate that she was um, not only supportive but very yeah. encouraging of me to um, yeah. think about mm -hmm. the next problem um, and so I did and it also excited me because it became very clear very soon that um, directed evolution most likely is the only path forward because um, for the adenosine base setter which I led um, it turns out that there's no naturally occurring um, adenosine deaminase um, that works on single-stranded or double-stranded DNA. Right. Well, and let's, that, hold, let's hold that there. I wanna, mm -hmm. We want to come back to that. But uh, so it sounds like the Nature paper, you're the first base editing proof of principle mm -hmm. or first system. So this is coming out now about about this time. Did the the, the primers that you mm -hmm. ordered was that the missing piece? Yeah, and that it all just that kind of yeah. came together, yeah. and so David could stop swearing and mm -hmm. could finally mm -hmm. uh, draft the paper. Yeah. So that wasn't like. I think it was in the summer of 2015. I had been, yeah, we had been doing... This all happened pretty quickly. This yeah, was it was. So we started writing yeah, up the manuscript. Yeah, we started writing up the manuscript at like my one year anniversary in well, the lab right okay. around there, which is, yeah, incredibly right. quick. And then it took another few months to get through reviews. I see. Why nature? <laughs> Versus what else? Where else would we send it? <laughs> well, Christmas Journal didn't exist, but uh, <laughs> uh, at that point. But uh, and I'm just curious if there was any thought to, uh, as a former, as an alum of nature, it's always interesting to hear why do people pick certain journals. I will say David. David. Okay. Said, some he, people he, don't like the three columns that science has. <laughs> so nature is just more aesthetically pleasing. There we go. Pleasing. All right. Yeah. More aesthetically pleasing. That's all. all and it's sort of like in in chemistry anyway. I think that nature is sort of the higher journal. Oh. Um, but it's also 
Yeah. Okay. Maybe I should say yeah. that. Okay. That, 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 that'll we get, like science too. That'll yeah. get some tweets. We, like um, yeah. we started, yeah. So we started drafting and then, you know, you put like your first draft together and you're like, oh my God, I'm missing all these like key experiments or these like little tiny things yeah. to like, you know, all the controls or yeah. not controls, but like the little like things that people are going to want to see. So we like wrapped that up and then the real like manuscript editing came over Christmas break. Like, like Christmas Day, I was at my husband's parents' house, like, working on this manuscript. Huh. And David is, like, he's so efficient with, like, turning over manuscripts. And, and so this entire break, it was, like, I'd, he'd send me some draft with all these edits that he wanted incorporated. Yeah. It would take me hours to incorporate the edits. And yeah. then I'd send it back to him, and I'd be like, okay. I can like hang out with my family now, yeah. and then it would like it was like two hours later, it'd be back with another one, and be like, "Please get this to me as quickly as possible." And so that that entire break was, I think that was supposed to be like my ten year high school anniversary like reunion thing. Yeah. I had to miss it because oh. I was I was editing this manuscript. Damn it, darn it. <laughs> um, and in peer review, did it get up? Was it did it did it? Uh, were there any? It was tough a struggle. Points? Really, it was yeah. a huge struggle. Yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um, we the the main concern was they didn't believe that we actually could get over fifty percent yield. Um, at the time, we only had these like Hexcel results where I think the highest C to T editing we saw was like forty percent, okay, or something. And there even with the Nick case, we still don't think since you're only modifying the one strand, we don't think it can go above fifty percent. Um, and then you know people had issues with like oh off targets. What about that? I think. I think that there was one other main thing okay. that I'm like blanking on okay. right now. But the um, I think yeah, there were like two main issues. Oh yeah, they didn't believe um, that it was. Someone wanted like primary cell experiments or something. Mm. Like oh, is it really like independent of the cell cycle? Mm. You know, since you're, we don't really know what other repair pathways yeah. we're relying on. We assume it's mismatch repair, but I don't think that has even still been like explicitly shown. Um, but it was like, oh, we don't really, are you sure that it actually is, um, like cell cycle independent that wasn't shown. And then they didn't believe that, um, they thought that the maximum yield would be 50%. And, uh, and so it was like a huge struggle. I think it was like, initially it was rejected and, um, and then, you know, David was like, like, write me a list of like responses to all of these things. And then I'm going to call the editor and like, just like, you know beg her to, to yeah. get it in. And yeah. so we wrote, like, you know, I I, spe- I didn't sleep for the next, like, 12 hours. I was, like, looking up, like, you know, citations showing that, like, you know, this, 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 whatever. And he had he had a really long conversation with the editor, and she agreed to, to see a revised manuscript. This was Angela? Yes, okay. yes. Angela Eggleston, um, yeah. And so um, I think... I finally, I did, I did like some nucleofection results and then I had the cells sorted yeah. for the nucleofected cells uh-huh. only. And it was with that like enrichment of transfected cells that we got like 75% editing. Okay. And so that was like, oh, thank God. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then it, 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 I think we still, we did a, another revision yeah. and eventually it made it out in like April okay. that year or something. So What a, what a great uh, example of, you know, Tenacity. Exact tenacity and, and appeal and you yeah. know, ed- I mean, editors are willing to listen if you've got yeah. good yeah. Uh, good and editors anyway. And yeah. now it's like one of the most widely cited papers. Yeah, yeah. And there was no, you, you, did you ever hear of any serious competition in this space? It seems to me that you just had the whole 
this this just kind of came out of nowhere. Oh, we're sort of paranoid, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we assume, but then, you know, the um, the condo paper came out about six months later, and the science paper. Which which paper is this? Sorry. The Target Aid paper. Okay. Okay. Um, who was the first author on that? Nishida. Nishida. Yeah, Nishida okay. and Kondo. Their okay. paper came out about mm-hmm. six months later in Science. Okay. Right. Um, and it, it was clear that, yeah, they were working on it at the same time okay. as us. We, we did. Okay. Was that the same type of base editor or were they doing a different modification? It was still cytosine, okay. cytosine delamination. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. All right. All right. So, Nicole, by, this, so you, by the time the Nature Papers come out, are you now set to you're determined to switch and uh is that about the timing that yeah i guess it was a little before it was a little writing it up yeah Yeah, i wasn't determined to switch i was very interested in thinking seriously about it but i still probably was 70 percent focused on my primary um so you're moonlighting uh, in your own project to dabble in something else and see what takes that's right and i was increasingly thinking of how can we turn adenosine into guanine and i found myself even you know when you're lying in bed and you can't sleep i found that my thoughts were more yeah increasingly that and decreasing of my antibiotic project so and then i started to dabble and my first yeah. and that and you're yeah. trying to reverse what what uh, Alexis has done in terms of the the opposite mutation yeah it's the opposite mutation um, right but there's no naturally occurring adenosine deaminase right. um, one could access uh, adenosine to guanine transition mutation through the inosine intermediate so inosine is sort of like uracil in the sense that if you um, hydrolytically deaminate the exocyclic amine of adenosine, you would form inosine. Inosine in the context of DNA polymerases um, base pairs with cytosine, which causes an A to G transition mutation. So we sort of knew all that, and by that time I had proven that chemically by making synthetic oligos, running it on the MySeq with different polymerases, and Uh 100% of the time the I was read out as a G. So I had uh-huh. the um, retrosynthetic knowledge that if one were to put install an inosine in single-strand DNA mm-hmm. from adenosine, you would get the desired outcome. Yeah. Um, no naturally occurring enzymes existed. So I started thinking about, okay, how? what's the best yeah. way to go about this? Yeah. And because my background is in mechanistic enzymology, so yeah. x-ray crystallography um, work, I thought I was clever enough to take a cytosine base editor or uh-huh. a cytosine deaminase, which already bounds single-stranded DNA, and just open up the binding pocket rationally. Yeah. Um, because surely um, a purine is only slightly bigger than a pyrimidine, and you know I can I can just tweak this here and there and open up the pocket. So yeah. I went down the you know organic chemist route of trying to rationally design things, doing in vitro work. Nothing worked, and that made me sort of frustrated. I was like, well, all right, so what am I going to try next? And then yeah. I knew I, I had worked with, like, LAC-Z screens before. It's a very uh-huh. standard um, screen that people do uh-huh. in bacteria to look if, like, your cloning plasmid was made correctly. But there's ways to manipulate that system to do a selection. I was like, maybe I should do selections on deaminases. Um, and just do some unbiased library and look to see if I can get a desired outcome. Yeah. And I was like, I don't want to mess around with Cas9. I don't want to mess around with like targeting it. I'm just going to look at the deaminases because surely this will be fine. Mm. So I putzed around with that for like five months. Um, I got all sorts of beautiful blue colonies, which is an indication that something happened. It all turned out to be false positives. Uh. I was chasing my tail. And by this time, like 
frankly, I was just pissed off because... Well, nothing seems to be working. <laughs> and working. this is the project that you're and, so excited about. Yes. And at that point, you know, I've been chasing my tail trying to get this to work and starting to, you know, devoting more and more time to it. I came to sort of a juncture at the project. It's like, either I drop this completely or... I do 100% this, 110% yeah, this, and I yeah. drop my antibiotic project I've been working on a year yeah. and a half, and I had just gotten it to the point where I had a pause, like, everything was, like, the system was working, I got yeah. it in microfluidics, like, it was all, the set, the stage was set to then properly do the experiments yeah. um, to get that going, and my background is in antibiotics, I've been doing this for, like, 12 years, yeah. or I can completely put that to the side. Right double down on this like risky project yeah. and make a new enzyme. <clears throat> and I decided to do the crazy thing. And it's crazy because as I understand it, there was a, wasn't this a golden rule in the Lou lab that you don't try to create a, an enzyme, you evolve an enzyme that doesn't, doesn't yeah. really exist? Yeah, you, the, if the first step of your project requires to evolve an enzyme to then do engineering on, that's a terrible project because there's two very uh, statistically unlikely things that have to yeah. um, be coordinated. Yeah. And so that's just a bad idea. Okay. <laughs> Especially if one is in the second year going on third year of their postdoc and maybe wants to start an academic career and you are jeopardizing, you know, yeah. a lot of things yeah. doing that. So I just felt compelled to um, continue on this crazy yeah. path that, you know, Two years ago, I didn't even know what Cas9 was. I certainly hadn't met Alexis. So yeah. It wasn't well thought out, and I didn't even think I was going to David Lou's lab. Yeah. So here I am as yeah. a distracted natural product chemist trying to do genome editing using this brand new technology and creating an enzyme that doesn't exist, right. and then engineering it to do something yeah. um, pretty spectacular. So then I scrapped everything I did. Yeah. I was like, no more rational design, no yeah. more laxity yeah. screen. Let's take the editor that Alexis very beautifully created, yeah. used that as a positive control to create a platform that could work. You know, take the time, like step, take a step, two steps back and okay. really think about what's going on. Yeah. Use something that works to develop a platform and prove to oneself that um, you can fish something out if something is working. I then started fusing you know, obviously I was using the base setter, so now this was a system in which deaminases were fusing to Cas9, and now this was going to be targeted to a selectable marker, basically. Got that system to work. Um, that took a lot of doing and, and, and pushing and pulling of levers to get the synthetic biology to work in E. coli. That was the other risk. I was going to develop all this mammalian <laughs> technology in, in a bug, basically. Um, and then once I had that platform working, which took several months, um, I then had the, the mental challenge of figuring out what enzyme do I start with. So there's lots of adenosine deaminases that operate on all sorts of different molecules. Some are nucleobases, some are nucleobases with sugars, some are um, tRNA, some are mRNA, um, none of which work on single-strand or double-strand DNA. So I had like five or six different enzymes I was playing with. And then, of course, all these enzymes have different homologs. Do I use mammalian ones? Do I use E. coli ones? Mm -hmm. Do I use ones that I know there's crystal structures of so mm -hmm. that if I get something, I can manipulate it more? Like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. um, so I just kind of, as rationally as I could, think about what would position ourselves in the best way to access an A-based editor. And I just went down the list. I was like, okay, we want 
to work with something that behaves well in E. coli because that's a robust system to do evolution and I'm comfortable with E. coli. I'm not going to add on, you know, working with yeast on top of all the other things I've never done before. <laughs> so we're going to lock that in. <laughs> And so I was like, okay, I can't Unless use... Unless they're adaptable. <laughs> we are adaptable well, I'm creatures. impressed. I really... I was like, okay, I can't use, like, the ADARs. That's just out because it's not going to work in E. coli. That requires a small molecule that is not present in E. coli. So, like, cross that one off the yeah. list. That's out. Yeah. Um, ADAs, they work on small molecules. I'm going to have the extra challenge of, like, getting it to... Um, getting the enzyme to bind a polymer. Yeah. So I was like, that's probably out. Um and then I began looking at Tadase, so that has a lot of homology with Apobex. I was like, that's that's cool, like that's something. Okay. Um, and it works on the anti-codon loop of tRNA, which is single-stranded mRNA. I was like, okay, maybe there's something here. Yeah. And so I used that as a template yeah. um, to begin the evolution. It turns out when you fuse all these different enzymes to Cas9 and, and transfect them in mammalian cells, they have absolutely zero activity. Oh. Um, just increasing the um, effective concentration of the substrate using Cas9 doesn't force these RNA editing enzymes to all of a sudden operate on DNA. There is none by high throughput sequencing. Right. Um, so I chose TAD-A and I also sort of um, unmarried myself from the idea that I could rationally design things. Yeah. So I said, you know what, I'm just going to make an unbiased library. I'm not going to play God. I'm just going to like, you know do an unbiased library using AeroProne PCR. And um, I don't know how many mutations might need to be made to at one time to get this thing to work if it can be, if it can be had. So I'm gonna make the biggest library I possibly can, which was always a, 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 a discord between yeah, yeah. myself and, and David. David. He insisted I didn't need to make big libraries, and I was like, no, the bigger the better. Like, what's the difference? So my library sizes were gigantic, like tens of millions, and I would just do these large assemblies and be up sometimes until two o'clock in the morning getting this, um, all the the bits and pieces together. Yeah. And so once I had this platform in place, I chose um, TAD-A as the starting material, made the library, did the selection and around enrichment, began looking at what was sort of popping up. Yeah. And this was sort of, um, I guess maybe this was a half a year after your paper was published. It was in mm -hmm. the summer. I remember looking at the sequencing and there was one residue that kept, like all the clones had the same mutation made. Uh -huh. And I went and looked at the crystal structure and I was like, holy crap. This is the this is the residue that's making contact with the two prime hydroxyl of ribose sugar. So in the wild type enzyme, this is this is making contact with the one thing that's different between what I'm trying to make and what I started with. And I was like, this is a smoking gun. So I made a quick little slide. I sent it to David, and my email reply was curse words again, <laughs> and it was like, holy, this is our smoking gun. And then I guess the rest is history. Right. Then it's just a matter of yeah. rinse, wash, re repeat, increase yeah. stringency, yeah. Um, see what happens in mammalian cells, push and pull some levers, do it so again. So that smoking gun is when you really felt, oh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. and it was it was a dim light. Yeah. There was a lot of <laughs> channels. Yeah. So the, at this point, <clears throat> it was just working in bacteria, yeah. and then it, it was reproducible in bacteria. Yeah. And I actually went to mammalian cells. Yeah. I guess this was a bit of serendipity, so I chose the same genomic sites that Alexis did yeah. because, like, what do I know? I don't know. I This was my first time ever working with mammalian cells, yeah. ever doing genome editing. I was like, I'm not going to broke what isn't, you know, fix what ain't broke. Right. 
and I had the six sites and I transfected the plasmid, which had the mutation that I pulled out from the first round of evolution, looked in the area, no editing, went to the next site, no editing, third site, no editing, fourth site, no editing, fifth site, no editing. By this time, I was like, this didn't work. You can't, you can't evolve <laughs> this enzyme in bacteria and then have it translate in mammalian cell. There's some disconnect between that. And then I looked at the sixth site and there was editing. It was low. It was like three, 3%, 4%. And this was with my, like my bad hands, never done transfection before. And I was like, oh, wait a second. You know, and if I hadn't seen that, I might've scrapped this yeah. and turned my attention to a different enzyme. And I was like, oh, wait a second. There's editing here. It was above background. All my negatives were negatives. And I was like, oh, okay. In hindsight, it turned out, because this was the first round of evolution, the, um, the enzyme had still kept its sequence preference from um, the original substrate, which was a UAC, anti-codon loop. Yeah. So it still really liked the TAC in DNA. Yeah. And it just turned out <laughs> that not only at that sixth site I had a TAC motif, but also the A was at a position in the window that it liked. It was at position five, which is an ABE as opposed to the C base. It has a slightly more narrow window, so there's slightly few a fewer bases that it can like reach, sort of speak. And it just by serendipity, luck, whatever you want to call it, one of my sites had the TAC motif with the A at the right mm. position. That's why I saw editing. Mm. Then once I did evolution, started to figure out why this was, we were able to broaden the, the sequence preference and, and have it, right. you know, not care about those things. But right. had I not had that heck, Heck to site to yeah. site, yeah. thrown in my initial mammalian yeah. cell test. Um, this could, this could be a yeah. different story. Oh, I could wow. not yeah. be here. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad it worked. Um, so, and you you chose uh, nature as well for the final um, for the paper. Yeah, I think there was a lot of um, excitement at base editing by this time, so people really had turned around in yeah. their minds about <laughs> it. It was yeah. a, a different story. I, I, had the, I had the opposite problem. We had, right. had yeah. a lot of quarters, actually, that were coming to the office, uh -huh. introducing themselves, sending emails, so I had a very different experience. Interesting, um, yes. As I said before, my background is chemistry, yeah. so... My natural products, a lot of papers I'm familiar with are nature papers. And yeah. at the end of the day, I, I told David that I feel fortunate just to be able to publish this anywhere. It's your choice. I, uh -huh. I, I don't mind. Right. Anywhere is great. That's good. Plus one is also great. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Guidepost. Our thanks to Synthago, providing genome engineering solutions such as synthetic single guide RNAs and CRISPR engineered cells. In this final segment of our interview with Alexis Comor and Nicole Gordelli, we talk about the future prospects and therapeutic implications of base editing. And we start with Alexis. Help us sort of, let's just sort of zoom back out a little bit. How, of all the different kind of possible permutations in base editing, how many do we now have robust systems and what, what, what are the st still the, the big uh, opportunities that are out there to, for future development? Yeah, I mean we have all the the easy mutations. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sterically, well, so that it's a for, relative term. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, for DNA, you have purines and you have pyrimidines, yeah. and so they're two different nucleobases, and yeah. they have different sizes. So one yeah. ring system versus a two ring system, 
And so purine and pyrimidine is always base pair with each other. And that fits in the DNA duplex very yep. nicely, sterically. Yeah. Um, and so we can go from like a purine to another purine or a pyrimidine to another pyrimidine. Yeah. And so doing transversion mutations, which is like a purine to a pyrimidine or vice versa, um, that has like this extra like like activation layer of, co- barrier. Yeah. Yeah. And layer yeah, of complexity. Which is like the yeah. issue of like, oh, this like huge change in sterics. Yeah. Um, and so that will require, you know, creative thinking. Okay. All right. So when did you, Alexis, decide you left the Lou Lab when to set up your your own lab? Um, June of 2017. Okay. And I'm curious, how did you have a a, a long conversation with David as to how 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 am I going to be able to uh, carve out an independent research project that, that you know, where, whereas he may you know, be looking, when you've got a hot project in your lab, new postdocs and grad students are coming in desperate to, you know, follow that path. So did you have to talk well, to him good, about All the how... good postdocs are applying to David's lab, not my lab. <laughs> like, when I, when, I was a, when I was a grad student looking to do a postdoc, like, I wanted to go to the big name lab. I didn't want to go to a new lab. Yeah. So he doesn't have to worry about me poaching good postdocs. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, it's interesting because the academic sort of job search takes so long. Yeah. It's like an eight-month process yeah. or longer. And so um, my paper came out in, like, April of 2016. And um, I said, you know, I talked to – he was like, oh, yeah, what, what are you thinking job-wise? And I said, oh, you know, it's always been kind of in the back of my mind to try out the academic route. I – you know, didn't know if it was going to actually work out or not. So I was like, I'll just do my thing, see what happens. Um, and then he said, oh, yeah, I think you'd be great at that. You're, you know, you really like mentoring people and, you know, you have creative ideas and um, you can take criticism. That's a big one. Um, when you apply for grants and submit papers and everyone's like, this is crap, like terrible idea. Yeah. I just sort of, you know, like pick myself up and figure out how to how to yeah how to recover from there yeah um yeah huge huge uh thing that you need to be able to do yeah um and so i started you know writing up these projects that were very much just related to dna repair um i wanted it you know to be very orthogonal to show that you know i was independent thinker i could come up with my own ideas that were creative Mm. Mm. um and so that process of developing you know this kind of like entirely new set of ideas took me about three months or so oh, yeah. to to write these these like grant applications essentially uh-huh, uh-huh. um and then you know submitted them to like five different schools all in california <laughs> because i was desperate you to were go clearly back home. determined to go back home yeah um and you know that turned in i think i got like three interviews and one offer and all you need is one but that was you know this was, I, I started writing these ideas, generating them in like July or something, yeah. and then the offer came in like April okay. or something. The oh wow! April. It takes forever. The, the academic job process, like we need to do something about it because okay. it just takes too long. Right. Um, so yeah, it was about like a year after I was like, you know, done with my postdoc essentially that yeah. I actually I got a job offer and left. Okay, and. Um, 
you're both in different ways involved in uh, beam therapeutics. Nicole, mm-hmm. you're actually employed there as chief scientist or something um, like that. Hey, you know, I get all twisted up by all these like fancy titles and stuff. I am a senior scientist leading the DNA editing platform. Okay. I think that's my official title. But. So when did the uh, concept of the company, do you recall when the concept of the company, because I mean, you're, you're st- this has all happened, as we said earlier, so, yeah. so quickly. Yeah. Um, I don't know when the concept happening. I mean, David is always active in starting new companies and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So he's always in and out talking to um, venture capitalists and stuff. Yeah. I think that the concept of it started before my work. I could be wrong. Okay. Um, was... I wasn't involved in any like money no. raising or anything like that. But at what point did you feel, you must have been also when particularly in and around the publication of your own um, uh, tremendous paper that, you know, this is a calling card to move into and yeah. follow Alexis, uh, not maybe not to California, but to <laughs> yeah. a good academic position. So when, yeah. did you, did, when did you get the feeling that maybe industry and, and this startup would be uh, the, the, the way you wanted to go? Yeah, I think this was something that took me a little bit of time to really um, confront and think about because I had been, you know, on the trajectory of doing an academic career and um, thinking about that. But when I was um, little, I wanted to be a doctor and my dad asked me why I wanted to be a doctor. And he said, um, he asked me why I wanted to be a doctor and I said, because I want to help people. And he said, well, why don't you become a scientist? Because you can help more people. And I remember at that time, I was in like fourth or fifth grade, I didn't, that like what didn't, that thought didn't occur to me because there wasn't a lot of women scientists. My father was a scientist. He was actually a chemical engineer and then he, um, he worked at Eastman Kodak. And I remember thinking, wait, there, I don't remember seeing any girls, like when you worked, it was like this foreign concept. But when he said that, I was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I love doing science. You know, I do all sorts of projects with my father and my grandfather. Yeah. And, um, I remember thinking that was a good idea. And that was my motivation eventually for doing graduate school. And somewhere along the way I became maybe not obsessed, but you get kind of, um, cultured into thinking the next step is to become yeah. a professor. That's like the highest echelon of, yeah. of academic, you know, um, uh, what you're striving for. Right. And I positioned myself for this and I, you know, then with this, this big project that was very exciting and yeah. it had such, you know, pretty fantastic potential for yeah. helping people when yeah. I, when it became the time was like, Okay, either I can stay in David's lab a little bit longer and then start the academic mm-hmm. career path. That's yeah. now going to be, you know, a year and a half later because the paper was published in November. So I was at like a weird time as well. I had to really think about what I wanted to do because that would be an investment of even more time. I'd been there four years and I was afraid of confronting this, this question. So I actually sat down in my bedroom for... Hmm, probably about one to two hours just by myself, like really thinking about this and asking myself tough questions of why do you want to do this versus why do you want to do this? Mm-hmm. What's the upside? What's the downside? What do you want out of your life? Um, and I, I realized the reason I came into science was to help people. Yeah. And this credi- incredibly fantastic technology that Alexis and I developed yeah. has that potential in yeah. a very broad way. This isn't just making a small molecule that you can treat and then, you know, maybe it, it won't even work and then it needs to be derivatized. If one can properly deliver this technology, right. it can be used over and over and over for this disease, for that disease. It has such modularity that yeah. it's it's not even, it, it can be e- very quickly and easily, yeah. I say in quotes, um, yeah. tuned to different diseases. And then I started to think about 
all the different people this might affect. And then I started to think, what if that was one of those people was my father? What if that was my grandfather? What was what if that was yeah. my, a hypothetical child of mine? I started yeah. getting this emotional feeling about what I was doing. Yeah. And I think it's like really important to know you talk about, you know, small molecule drugs like we're not treating the symptoms. We're not treating the disease. She's talking about yes. curing the disease. Yes. You know, yes. like Sorry. Yes. one and done, this person's healthy. Not, oh, now you need this treatment for the rest of your life to yes. prevent you from you know, showing symptoms. Right. I took a few more questions and then we'll, we'll, we'll close. Um, you said something very profound, I think, which was on my list of, of that oh. I wanted to follow up. But no, not profound. <laughs> but um, uh, you said if you can properly deliver. Yeah. So please uh, tell us a little bit about what, what are the potential challenges of delivering. This isn't just a sort of acute, like it's not a small yeah. molecule. It's yeah. a, a something that uh, presumably has going to be coaxed and kept, kept active and it's not not small um yeah it's not cute it's not cute in some ways yeah it is a macromolecule that needs to be properly yeah you know delivered to cells so yeah. uh, cells have to take off this huge hugely uh, a huge um uh machine protein, it's a little yeah molecular machine yeah. that also has you know rna attached to it and things yeah. like that um so there are tons of different um delivery modalities that lots of people around the world are working on uh, collectively to get after this point. Uh -huh. um, and I truly believe that at some point the technology will be there because there's so many brilliant people working together yeah. to... Um, <clears throat> Is this something that could be delivered with a virus in principle? Or? In principle, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so um, the original base editors that Alexis and I development developed um, take advantage of S. pyogenes Cas9, which is a larger um, Cas9 protein, but there is, you know, like a, a catalog of different yeah. Cas9s varying in sizes yeah. um, and PAM sequence preferences and um, and those could be more amenable to delivering just because they're, they're yeah. smaller in size. There's also different molecular tricks that you can employ to yeah. kind of chop it up a bit and then it can reassemble once it gets into the cell as a, yeah. a, a, a full yeah. construct. So there's, there's lots of engineering opportunities and lots yeah. of bright minds thinking about these problems. Yeah. And what are the, um, uh, in terms of uh, targeting a specific gene mutation, um, it, fine, you can change um, a purine to a pyrimidine or vice versa, but you, within a certain context of a gene, what are, what are the restrictions on wh whether you could target a specific, gene, a specific mutation in the CF gene? What about the flanking sequences to be able to precisely bind and target that mutation yeah, and not so a... This is like a huge difference between traditional genome editing with double-stranded breaks. Yeah. You just need, you need a double-stranded break somewhere near yeah. where you want to do the modification. And um, these Cas enzymes have, you know, these short sequences called PAMs that yep. they require to bind. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they can introduce a break just somewhere nearby. Yeah. Uh, but with base editing, it's, like, really, really stringent in yeah. terms of, like, where that protospacer needs to be. Yeah. And so you usually, you have, you know, a four base pair window in terms of, like, I have to have a PAM right here yeah. in order to target this <clears throat> yeah. mutation. Um, but, you know, people are engineering Cas9s like crazy to f recognize new PAMs. Right. Um, there's, you know, multiple options of these NG PAM variants, right. which is great. And I'm sure it's just going to get better from So there. in terms of um, thinking about the potential opportunities for base editing therapeutically, uh, m part of the story in the future will be 
um, tweaking the PAM yeah. so that you oh, can yeah. find yeah. and get right. Yeah, I think right. these are all so imminently yeah. solvable problems yeah. Yeah. Um, with engineering and creativity. I think yeah. that mm-hmm. there they're definitely are challenges currently, but yeah. I think they're imminently solvable problems. Yeah. Well, Nicole, I know you're not going to give us um, you know a, a precise catalogue <laughs> of diseases that you're interested in, but we know that there are... What's, what's the number? 6,000 known Mendelian um, genetic disorders. Yeah, so how do you, what, what, what can you tell us about how BEAM is um, sort of prioritizing that? What are the, what, what's the low hanging fruit in terms right. of applying base editing? Yeah, so just like with any company really, you have to be realistic about what you can can do. Yeah. So realistically, the one of the biggest challenges is delivery. Yeah. So you need to look at modalities in which delivery it maybe is less challenging because you can do things ex vivo. Yes. So ex vivo is a huge um, area that we're looking at just because there's so many hurdles you have to get over. If you can lower one of the bars, yes. you know, even a little, you know, that's what yeah. you're going to go after. That's not to say we're not doing, you know, the high in the sky, big uh-huh. um, idea challenges because we certainly are. We're yeah across all sorts of different um, disease targets, Um, but certainly the modalities which are ex vivo are most likely to be the ones that will work the quickest just because the technology to get these molecular machines into the cells is a little bit more refined. Right. There was a paper published, um, I think it was 2017 or 2018, in, from a Chinese team in which, maybe maybe more than one, in which base editing was used on human embryos as a sort of a proof of principle. I wonder what you feel about seeing your technology, or at least something derived from your technology, used in that way. Yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. I get a lot of questions about it too, and I'm like, I had nothing to do with that. I right. certainly would never do any experiment like that myself. Right. I've only ever, you know, been a proponent of, um, or, um, you know, supported like somatic Somatic, cell genome editing. Yeah. Um, But, you know, you can't, what am I going to do? I can't stop it. It's almost like a Pandora's box. Yes. You know, if I don't do it, someone else's, if I don't develop the technology, someone else is going to develop the technology and then, you know, someone's going to use it in human embryos anyways. Right. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't support yeah. you know, working yeah. in embryos at all. And yeah. at some point, we're creating the technology, yeah. Yeah. and it's up to it's the responsibility of the yeah. researcher to right. use it in an ethical way. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, we certainly can't control what others are doing, yeah. um, and we hope that there are guidelines and um, oversight for yeah. um, institutions and folks using the technology to yeah. use it in an ethical, proper way. Yeah. Well, maybe on a more upbeat note uh, to close, <laughs> um, yes. uh, we've heard what is. Beam uh, is is doing in, in broad strokes. Alexis, what's mm-hmm. you've got your lab is up and running, and you're going to be getting you know many more great postdocs. <laughs> Forget David. Go go to go to Southern yeah. California. Um, so what's the main focus that you're you're pursuing yeah, now? Yeah, so it's interesting because um, science is getting so interdisciplinary now, but we still, especially in academia, we have these specific departments that like define the type of science we're supposed to be doing. So I am in a chemistry and biochemistry department. But, you know, the type of science that we do, we collaborate with tons of labs across campus because, like, the chemistry, biochemistry is not enough for us. Um, but we, we study, you know, the chemical biology of DNA damage and repair. Um, we have a couple of different subgroups, and um, we're really interested in mechanisms of DNA repair, particularly for these new intermediates, um, these new DNA damage intermediates that we're using with base editing. So can we better understand your cell repair, inosine repair? Um, 
you know, what the things that we've learned from the cytosine base editors and the adenosine base editors um, in terms of, you know, uracil or inosine is a better intermediate. It, you know, it's higher efficiency, it's cleaner edits. So can we, you know, learn from that and maybe design new types of damage that can be used as um, genome editing intermediates? Um, can we identify new types of damage that give really predictable uh, mutational mm -hmm. outcomes? Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, study the repair processes that are involved in that. Um, we're also interested in using base editing as a tool to better understand genetic disease. Mm -hmm. um, in my talk yesterday, I mentioned that, you know, a huge um, proportion of these um, single nucleotide variants that are identified in humans are classified as variants of unknown significance. And this is also really population specific. So I've sort of generated this lab from a lot of diverse individuals. Um, and so we're really interested in uh, minority health. Um, as I mentioned, one of my postdocs is, is um, Polynesian. And so he's looking into these variants that um, have been found in Polynesian populations because no one else has really been studying these. No one cares enough. Variants like, associated with obesity in yeah, that's yeah. one particular variant he's looking at, but also like 96% of GWA studies are done on white people of European descent. Yeah. And so we're looking at expanding that and yeah. we want to, you know, increase um, diversity of the science as well as the scientists that are yeah. doing it. Um, and so that's sort of like a really exciting yeah. um, thing that we're yeah. kind of looking at right now. Well, we wish you uh, every success in your academic and commercial uh, endeavors <laughs> in the future development of base editing. So Alexis Comor and Nicole Godelli, thank you so much for joining us on Guidepost. Yeah, thank, thank you. Yeah, this was awesome.